welcome to the Tebby podcast from The Evidence-Based Investor. I'm Robin Powell, and this podcast is produced by Regis Media, a niche provider of educational and marketing content for financial advice and planning firms. Now, it probably hasn't escaped your notice that we're starting to see the B word banded around. That's B for bubble. After all, few people predicted that global stock markets would bounce back as strongly as they did from the sharp market falls we saw in March 2020. Here we are, more than a year later, with much of the world still in lockdown, large sectors of the economy stuck in the slow lane, mass unemployment on the cards, and yet, as I speak, most of the major markets are not far off all-time highs. So, are we in a bubble? What are the warning signs to look out for? Are bubbles inevitable? And if so, is there anything investors can do about it? There are few people better to answer those questions than John Turner, Professor of Finance and Financial History at Queen's University, Belfast. Professor Turner is a Fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences and an editor of the Economic History Review. He's recently written a book with William Quinn called Boom and Bust, A Global History of Financial Bubbles. I started by asking Professor Turner, do we simply have to accept it as a fact of life that economies and markets are bound to crash from time to time? So, uh, Professor Turner, thank you very much indeed uh, for your time. Um, I suppose, you know, the, the, the question I want to start with really is, you know, this whole sort of boom and bust cycle, if, if you like, uh, that, that we've, we've, we've got used to, is it inevitable? You know, do, do we have to accept that economies uh, now and again are bound to, to crash? Yeah, so, so, so thank you, Robin, for, for having me on your podcast. Um, yeah, so I always take a, a very long run perspective on, on these types of questions. Uh, and by a long run perspective, I mean, you know, hundreds of years. And the lesson of history is that the economies do go through uh, booms and busts. Uh, they are inevitable. And I suppose then the interesting question is, you know, why do these happen? So you can think historically that, you know, it, it, it might have been uh, due to, you know, weather and crops and, and crop failure uh, would have been driving, you know, booms and busts. Uh, mm. You come into the industrial era. It becomes more complicated to understand, you know, the role of human psychology, of course, is playing a role. The role of central banks and money plays a role in creating these. But they, they do seem to be inevitable, um, despite what uh, Gordon Brown famously said uh, when he was Chancellor of the Exchequer, no more boom and bust. Uh, I, th I think the, it yep. is inevitable. Mm -hmm. So you, you you mentioned a few sort of possible causes there, you know, historically sort of crop failure. Uh, today, maybe more likely to be human human nature, if you like, fear and greed, or or, or whatever government policy. Um, what are your own views as to what the likeliest causes are of of crashes in the modern era? So, in, in the modern era, one of the main drivers of booms and, and, and busts is um, the role of, of of monetary policy and of credit policy. Uh, so, within you know modern economies. Uh, we've reduced lending standards, we've liberalized uh, banking systems, and 
uh, you know, that really seems to be behind a lot of the major booms and busts, and indeed a lot of the major crashes which have had serious consequences for economies uh, have been underpinned by, you know, this easy lending by banks and this, you know, flooding of credit onto the market. Uh, that seems to me, you know, in the modern era to be the main driver. Mm. And and that does seem to be a, a bit of a sort of cause for concern today, obviously, because we've had, you know, cheap money uh, for for a long time. Um, you know, ha- how long interest rates can can sort of stay as low as they are, uh, no, nobody knows. But is there a danger today? Do you think that that availability of of, of free money might stoke a, a, a bubble? Yeah, so, so there's two things going on. So when interest rates are, are, are so low, uh, it can stimulate people borrowing uh, and they borrow then to buy uh, bubble assets. So that bubble asset could be a house, it, it could be land, it, 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 it could be uh, Bitcoin, it could be uh, stocks and, 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 and shares. Um, so that's, that's one thing. The second thing that low interest rates do, and we see this in historical bubbles, is that it causes investors to reach for yield. Uh, mm. So Walter Beget, a former editor of The Economist and uh, you know literary critic, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, he had a saying that John Bull can withstand many things, but he can't withstand 2%. In other words, investors <laughs> don't like low interest rates. And yeah. when low interest rates are prevailing in the economy, they tend to reach for riskier assets and start investing in riskier assets. So that's that's also something that we see happening in, in, in historical bubbles. And again, you, you can sort of see that happening today. I mean, there's, there's obviously the, the sort of Neil Woodford blow up, which, which everybody's talking about at the moment because of his uh, of Woodford's planned return. Um, you know, and there are there are concerns about um, uh, OD asset management, for example, a, a big sort of hedge fund. There's a, there's another uh, uh, French firm H two O, which ha- has uh, got itself into difficulties, r- really by trying to, as you say, eke out uh, any available yield. Um, you know, and, and encouraged by its. Um, investors if you like to 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 try and you know reach for extra yield um is that a danger today is that a pattern you see happening yeah so i i i do think you know when you when you look at you know bitcoin uh for example and you see people piling into to bitcoin and then going into uh technology companies in the united states um you would have to, you'd have to think that there is, you know, investors are reaching for yield today, um, and you know that reaching for yield could be driving the, the you know, the, some of the boom that we see in in tech stocks, some of the boom that we're seeing in, in the likes of Bitcoin today. Um, I, I suppose one of the dangers too is that so people go into riskier assets, but they also maybe go into to less liquid assets, uh, and. Yes. During the boom times, not a problem. But then, when the crash hits, as we saw with with Woodford, uh, you know, there's a scramble for liquidity, and that can really leave investors high and dry. So, yeah, I, I am concerned about the, there is reaching for yield today. My um, experience is um, that there is a fundamental misconception about the connection between the, the the economy and 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 the stock market you know pe- people kind of assume that they're sort of very closely related and that they will go up and down at exactly the same time and so on but but 
Um, that's not necessarily the case, is it? I mean, how, how closely do booms and busts uh, in the economy correlate with with bull and bear markets? Yeah, so so uh, this this is this is a really interesting question, and, and it's something that I've looked at uh, for the UK market over the past couple of hundred years. How closely connected uh, is what's happening in the real economy to what's happening in the stock market? And in this piece of work I've done with a, a couple of co-authors. What we're finding is that the stock market is uh, two months ahead of the of, of the real economy. Yeah. So the, the the peak in the stock market is two months ahead of of uh, of what's happening in the economy. And so you know the stock market's this great forward-looking machine. Uh, it's looking into the future. It's looking into you know what it expects profits of companies to be out into the future. And uh, you know it seems to be this. It, it seems to be a good predictor. However. There is a question today regarding the stock market as to whether it's it's a sideshow to some extent that it's it's not really reflecting the overall economy anymore. And so you look, you know, the United States stock market at the minute, and you know, going through a major pandemic, you wouldn't expect the stock market to be doing particularly well, but it it has been, uh, and that's because of a small number of stocks, Tesla, uh, the fat, the so-called Fang stocks. They've been driving the returns on on the U.S. stock market. Other stocks have been doing just okay. Um, and then there's a question: Well, how representative are those Fang stocks and Tesla of the of the overall economy? And so there is a, a suggestion that today the stock market doesn't really reflect what's happening in the overall uh, economy. So it, it, you you were saying that the stock market typically looks about sort of two months ahead, um, but clearly. Uh, as 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 the chancellor was was saying the other day the the, the economy has had one heck of a, a shock i mean it, it it was placed on the sidings if you like. i think i think it was warren buffett's phrase last year and that's a huge jolt to the economy um and and it's it's hard to imagine that it, that two months from now things will be as good as current prices suggest they will Yes, that, uh, and that's particularly the case for, I, I think, the United States, uh, you know, the market in the United States. It's, I think it's also the case for several other markets. I'm not so sh- sure about the UK market. Um, it's done okay uh, during the pandemic in terms, but it ha- relative to what's been going on in other uh, economies, it hasn't performed that well. And, and that's possibly because the UK market's been dragged back by, you know, the large oil producers and, and companies that haven't necessarily been performing that well uh, during the pandemic. Whereas in the United States, it's the tech firms that have actually had a good pandemic, if you, if you, you know, in terms of there's an increase in demand for their, their, their services. Mm. I mean, in, in the book, you, you look at, is it 10 booms and busts over the last sort of three 300 years? Um, so starting, of course, with the South Sea bubble and also mentioning some, some crashes, which I, I must admit, you know, I, I wasn't aware of. Latin America, for example, in, in the 1820s, uh, Melbourne in, in, in the 1880s. Um, sort of broadly speaking, what lessons can investors learn from these crashes? I mean, are, are, there, are there kind of common themes throughout our or, or, or are they all very different? So one of the things that we do in the book is we have this uh, a metaphor that we, we use throughout the book. And the metaphor uh, comes from the fire triangle in chemistry. And so for a fire to happen, you need heat, oxygen and fuel. And then the, the, the spark happens and, and the fire uh, kicks off. Uh, and so we think we see 
a, a bubble triangle in, in all of these historical episodes. So there's three things that w you need for a bubble. So you need, first of all, uh, as we've already talked about, uh, you need money and credit. So low interest rates, uh, easy borrowing conditions. That's the fuel for the bubble. Uh, mm -hmm. Then there's the oxygen uh, for the bubble or the marketability. So what we observe in each of these historical bubbles is that either thanks to technology or regulation, things become a lot more marketable. It's a lot easier to buy and sell uh, assets, uh, and particularly the bubble asset. And then the third thing that we observe in all these bubbles is, uh, you know, the heat, which we call, we call the speculation. And so in all of these bubbles, we see uh, novice investors, amateur investors, people entering the uh, stock market for the very first time. So these three things are, are, are common in, in all of these bubbles. So speculation, marketability uh, and easy money and credit. And all of the bubbles then require a spark. And this is where there's no common theme across these bubbles. Um, you know, tech, new tech, a radical new technology could be the thing that sparks speculation. Uh, a political um, action can can uh, spark the speculation, or political decisions uh, can spark the speculation. And those those two things are really hard to, to identify, and they're different in in, in each and every bubble. Uh, but the three common elements: it's the speculation, marketability, and then the easy money and credit. Mm. There was that that famous uh, quotation, wasn't there? I think it was was it from John F. Kennedy's father who said, "You know, the, the time you should start worrying is, is when the shoe shine boy starts talking about stock prices and 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 so on." And there certainly is a a kind of sense of that at the moment, isn't there? With 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 the internet and 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 people talking about stocks as if they're experts, but when you look at their profiles, they're they're clearly kind of <laughs> <laughs> students or uh yeah um with with very little kind of previous um sort of investing or or or, or trading experience yeah so, so again all of these historical bubbles that's just what you see all of the, the novices rushing into the market and as you say uh you know shoeshine boys taxi drivers uh you know as soon as they start talking about shares that's the that's the time to be getting out um I was in, in Shenzhen in uh, May 2015 when um, the, the Chinese stock market was going through a huge bubble and I was meeting lots of people in the financial industry, uh, but I was also, you know, meeting ordinary people and, and through translators talking to them. And, you know, I, I was having taxi drivers talk to me about the latest tech stocks being launched on the Shenzhen market. And for me as a historian, this was fascinating because I knew <laughs> that we were in the middle of a bubble. Uh, and then today, uh, you know, with social media and then all of these amateur uh, millennial investors, it's, it's you know, there are, there are warnings out there for us that there's something not right when there are so many uh, day traders, uh, when it's so easy through some, you know, through these trading apps like Robinhood to, to buy and sell shares. Uh, uh, and I also think in, in, in your twi Twitter timeline, if you're seeing stuff for Bitcoin pop up, mm. uh, that's that's almost like the, the modern equivalent of the shoeshine boy. Mm. I mean, it isn't it isn't sort of te technology a really sort of important aspect because there's no particular reason why people should be buying sort of shares now, although obviously people who, who did kind of join the trading boom during the pandemic 
um, much to the surprise of, of of sort of many sort of expert commentators, if you like, did did very well because clearly the, the market recovered when sort of no one was kind of expecting it to, to do so. Um, but it's 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 simply the fact that all these sites like Robinhood, and we've got various trading apps here, here in the UK now. Um, combined, of course, with, with with social media itself, and and everyone likes seeing what everyone else is doing. Is there a danger that all all those different technologies coming together is fueling a bubble as well? Yeah. So it, again, going back to the the bubble triangle, the three sides of it. So the marketability mm-hmm. thing, uh, you know, it really has shot through the roof. It's so easy to buy and sell. You know, so so many of these uh, online stockbrokers are zero commission. Uh, they, they allow you to buy fractional shares. So, you know, particularly in the United States where you've got some stocks that are priced in thousands of dollars, you can buy a fraction of a Tesla stock. You don't even have to, you know, uh, buy a whole Tesla stock. So, you know, that marketability and then the speculation, uh, you know, through Reddit, through these online discussion forums, through social media, you know, it, it sort of, uh, instead of the coffee house or the newspaper being the, the place that sort of is, is generating the excitement and bringing in amateur speculators, it, it's social media. And social media moves so quickly compared mm-hmm. to the, you know, the old traditional press. And you're more likely to get herding effects whereby, you know, uh, you know more and more investors uh, pile into particular stocks or, or, or assets like Bitcoin. Um, and, you know, it, it really does fuel uh, the, the, the rise in the asset price. Um, having said that, one of the concerns I would have about social media, uh, and I think we, we've seen this recently, is, is manipulation. Uh, it is possible to manipulate people on social media. And so you may have large, uh, sophisticated investors either manipulating smaller investors or actually engaging in, you know, they're scanning social media and they're mm-hmm. trying to ascertain using uh, artificial intelligence what yep. the mood, what the sentiment of, of investors is, and then they're basing their trading strategies off the back of that. Um, you know, and in the book, we actually we do talk about social media in, in China because during the, the 2015 bubble, uh, so Chinese-controlled state press, of course, is going to you know do what the Chinese government wants, and so they pump the bubble uh, or puff it. Uh, but they also were paying social media commentators to influence people, uh, and so people were being paid per... Uh, per social media comment uh, to, to actually help uh, pump up the stocks in, in, in China. Really? So you mentioned these three factors, which which are, are generally present in, in, in all of the uh, bubbles that you've that you, you've looked at. But, but that that still doesn't make bubbles kind of easy to predict, uh, uh, does it? I mean, are, are there any other kind of warning signs that, that in, investors should 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 be looking for? Is, is there a kind of you know early warning system you know that investors can sort of um, as, assemble to reduce the chances of, of them getting sort of caught up in one of these bubbles? Yeah. So this is a question that's very commonly asked: Can we actually predict bubbles? And I think one of the lessons that we draw out from the book is that it is very, very hard to predict bubbles in real time. And it's even hard to look back in time and, and, and definitively say that there was a bubble and what were the causes of those bubbles. So if it's, if it's difficult with the benefit of hindsight, it's super difficult with in real time. So 
in the final chapter of the book, we, we, we sort of try and draw out some lessons for, for investors. And so we come back to those three sides of the bubble triangle. If those three things are present, doesn't necessarily mean that there's a bubble, but it means that you should be alert to the possibility that there's going to be a bubble because the necessary conditions have been have been met. Mm-hmm. But bubbles are ultimately caused by these sparks, uh, and sparks can be new technology. And it's really difficult to know uh, where new technology is going to come from, or if a new technology is developed, if it's going to be widely adopted, if it's going to be successful. So standing back in the mid-1990s, who knew that the internet was going to be such a, a you know a wonderful mm-hmm. thing? Who could yeah. really foresee that? Okay, you could take a punt and say, well, yeah, it's going to do okay. But we couldn't, we, we, we didn't know for sure. Um, mm. And then with government policy, again, it's very hard to uh, predict what the, the, you know, the spark from government policy would be. It's, it's hard to predict the future. And so I suppose our advice to investors is if, if they want to try and figure out if there is a spark out there, then they need to, they, they, they need to spend a lot of time and they need to develop what we call new mental models. Uh, they need to think about how the economy is functioning. They need to think about how financial markets are functioning, but also psychology of investors, sociology. And we also like technology, trying to understand uh, developments in technology. You know, it's just that need to educate yourself. Um, but I think our main piece of advice to investors is don't get caught up in bubbles. <laughs> sit, 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 sit them out. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, so, so once it's already started, it, it's too late. You know, you, you, the, the the value of your portfolio has fallen. So you might as well just stick there and see how long it lasts, rather than sort of panicking. Yeah. Yeah. Because I suppose the uh, the, the the crash. I mean, if if you could even call it a crash of sort of March twenty twenty. I mean, it, it didn't last very long, did it? I mean, it, it was certainly by August that that most of the major stock markets had had actually recovered from those lows we saw in in March twenty twenty. Yeah. So this this actually raises a really interesting point because we can think of March twenty twenty in, in one of two ways. First of all, there was an overreaction. Uh, and so investors panicked, uh, and so they're rushing for the exits, and that's driving down the, the, the asset prices. That's one way of thinking about it. But the way the way I think about it is that central banks around the world stepped in. Central banks around the world are underwriting the market, and uh, particularly in the United States, when where you had a president who was obsessed with the stock market and how the stock market was doing, uh, the central bank steps in, and it was that central bank underwriting of the market that I think. Uh, encouraged then uh, it, it stopped the market falling and it, it encouraged the, the initial re- rebound that, that we saw in the market. I think other things have taken over since then but that raises questions then about you know what investors you know so investors know uh, that the central bank or governments are going to step in and stop the market falling. How does that change then uh, the behavior of investors and do they take more risk then? Because they think, well, the central bank's going to stop, you know, the market crashing. There's going to be that Greenspan pit that mm. uh, protects us, uh, and so that that actually creates concerns for me moving forward. So there are sort of general stock market crashes, but we also have crashes that in, that involve particular sectors, don't we? I mean, obviously, you know, a very very well known one was the sort of tech uh, bubble, the dot com boom at the end of the twentieth uh, century. And very often when, when these sort of bubbles occur, it, it doesn't necessarily infect the whole stock market. Um, 
I, I think I saw you share something the other day, John, about, for example, the the, the massive crash in bicycle stocks at the end of the nineteenth mm-hmm. uh, century, for example, which obviously you know was was catastrophic for you know the, the sort of West Midlands economy where I am, uh, but but generally speaking, the you know it it, it hardly registered. So. Uh, I suppose there's an important distinction to make there between sort of general market crashes and 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 particular sort of sector crashes, if you like. Yes, so, so I, I think that 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 is an important distinction, but also an important distinction in terms of uh, the what's what's the spark behind the bubble. So in both the case of mm-hmm. the dot com and bicycle stocks, uh, it was a new technology, and mm-hmm. the boom happens in the new technology part of the market. It doesn't happen elsewhere in the market, and so when the new technology part of the market, uh, you know, crashes, uh, you know, there isn't the same s- sort of spillover effects into the general economy um, because of that. So, you know, that that kind of partially explains, you know, why that happened. But when when you you know try to sort of speculate on a on a on, on a particular uh, technology d- doing sort of well in the future. Um, it, it's not as easy as that, is it? Because you know, he, historically, and I, uh, uh, you know, I, I've interviewed uh, Elroy Dimson and and his colleague David Chambers at, at, at Cambridge about this, and their view is very much that um, w- when there is a kind of new paradigm, if you like, l- like I don't know, railways uh, in in the in the nineteenth century, very often the advantages, the benefits of that new technology don't accrue to the stockholders they accrue to the sort of general public and, and, the, and the consumer if you like mm-hmm. and very often even if a technology is hugely successful you i suppose like um, like the internet if, if, if you like um you, you still see a crash in 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 that sector you know it's a really interesting point you make there in, in the sense of the general public tend to benefit not the not the mm. initial investors Mm. And you do tend to observe this with some of these technological bubbles that they're actually good for society. Uh, mm. And we could call them useful bubbles in that regard. Uh, but as you say, investors or the vast majority of investors actually lose out. Um, one way of thinking of, of, of these technology stocks is, is that there's lots of them come to the market. Most of them fail, but there's one or two who do really well. Yeah. So, for example, how do you invest it? I think we talk about this in the book, uh, in Amazon's IPO uh, back in the, the 1990s, and you held that stock today, you'd be a very wealthy individual. Uh, but had you invested in a, you know 20 other stocks, you probably would have lost all your money. Uh, mm-hmm. So there is that sort of lottery element to some of these technology companies, and we don't know which ones are going to succeed. So again, the, with the bicycle stocks, there was like 600 plus bicycle companies, uh, you know, and... Who knew that, well, Raleigh was going to be the one that, that came out yeah. on top um, mm. and, and many of the others uh, failed and, and investors would have lost their money. Because even if you buy a fund, I'm thinking today, for example, you know, yeah. you, you, you're, I mean, I, I suppose it's, 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 it's a bit of a no brainer that, that driverless cars are, are going to pay, play a big part in the future. But even if, say, in the next few years, you, you invest in a fund that gives you exposure to, you know, a wide range of uh, companies involved in that sector. Um, 
as you say, only one or two pro- probably will will actually become the kind of Amazon of that sector in in the future. Yeah, uh, so it, it's it's interesting actually you say that because some of the best performing funds last year in the United States were green technology funds. So again, people are seeing the future; they're seeing the way government policy is moving, and uh, who knows. You know yeah. whether the you know how many of the companies in that that fund will actually, um, you know, be still around in ten years' time, uh, and have actually produced a, a return for investors. Well, that that's interesting because there is this sort of major kind of shift, isn't there, towards ESG investing, um, and and increasingly, I suppose it it will ESG will become sort of mainstream uh, over over the next. Few years, but we've seen prices uh, relative to kind of sin stocks, if you like, go up quite dramatically in in well, certainly the last sort of year or so. Is there a bubble being stoked there? Do you think? Uh, uh, yeah, so potentially, uh, uh, and again, it could be coming from the the spark of government policy, because again, governments around the world have really been pushing the the, the move to uh, to net zero. And therefore, companies are falling in line behind that, and so potentially we could be looking at uh, at at a bubble in in these types of stocks. And so Tesla is a prime example, I think, of yeah. of a yeah. stock that has benefited from this push for for green technology. Um, but it it would worry me that that's also then driving a bubble in in those in Tesla stock and in other types of stocks that are you know uh, working within a whole area of green technology. I mean, we, we mentioned social media and the role that that plays uh, in in sort of stock bubbles and 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 so on. Um, I mean, Tesla is extraordinary, isn't it? Because uh, Elon Musk only has to tweet something, and and the price may shoot up or it might shoot right down. You know, there, there's another example of technology possibly creating a, a sort of spike in 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 uh, Tesla, for example. Yeah, uh, s- certainly uh, when, when Musk tweets, things happen. Um, uh, and also there's almost like, so amongst a lot of the amateur millennial investors, there's like a cult-like uh, aura around Elon Musk. Uh, and so when he says Tesla is going to invest in, you know, some of their cash in Bitcoin, uh, you know that uh, you know people get really excited by that, and they see him as an outsider, uh, and so therefore he's able to attract a lot of. He's like the Pied Piper of Hamlin, attracting a lot of the, the young millennial investors uh, behind him. So yeah, that, that that would worry me as well. And of course, GameStop was was an extraordinary uh, saga, wasn't it? A few a few weeks ago, um, where where we saw these sort of young sort of inexperienced um in, investors sort of driving up the price of a stock and presumably a lot of them getting their fingers badly burnt do, do, do you think the lessons will be learned from that or do you think we'll see more gain stock type situations in the future so so gamestop was super interesting because again taking the historical perspective we have seen short squeezes uh, in the past but it's typically not been a bunch of amateur investors colluding together it's typically uh, the insiders within a firm whether it be large shareholders or directors who are um, you know so their stocks being shorted and so they try to corner the market uh, and squeeze the the short sellers so we, we, we saw this uh, some really good examples during the bicycle mania uh, that actually ended up going to court 
So then, you know, we come forward to, to, to GameStop, and here we've got another short squeeze, except it's now being co coordinated by, uh, by by social media. But I, I think what I would want to wait a few months to see who has won and lost, um, because, okay, so there's a lot of amateur investors rushing in, uh, putting the squeeze on the, the hedge funds who are shorting GameStop and other types of stock. Uh, but you have to be concerned that there was a lot, a lot of manipulation, uh, market manipulation going on. Uh, and really, until we have that investigation, it, it's going to be difficult to, to really know who won and lost uh, and whether we're going to see that type of thing happen again. So, so what does all this then mean for uh, portfolio construction and investment strategy and, and so on? As as you've explained, um, you know there are a few warning signs, but basically predicting a bubble is is sort of fiendishly difficult. So, is there a case for just um, taking the sort of Rip Van Winkle approach and you know going to sleep for thirty years and just trying to blot everything out and say, look, sometime over the next thirty years is going to be probably I don't know three or four, you know major uh, market downturns but heck i don't know when they're going to happen so i'm just going to sit them all out is, is there a case for doing that so for most investors i would say that that is what they they should do because one of the lessons of of, of, of stock market history for me or well several lessons one is it's really difficult to time markets you know if people are trying to sell at the top buy at the bottom that's really really difficult to do and so history t tells me that timing markets is really difficult. But history also tells me, and this goes back to, uh, you, you mentioned Elroy Dimson and his colleagues who have, you know, produced the, these wonderful uh, uh, return series for all these economies across the world back to 1900, looking at the equity risk premium. And so if you're holding a balanced portfolio, you're going to earn, uh, you know, a premium over government bonds that's, you know, depending on the economy you're in. Uh, it's going to be of the order of four to six percent per annum, uh, and you know again, less of history. You compound that over time, over the thirty years, uh, you, you're going to be doing okay. The third lesson of history, I think, for for the sort of everyday investor, is to be aware of inflation, uh, because inflation can come along and uh, hit investors with with nasty surprises. It's a long time since we we in uh, Western democracies have, have witnessed high inflation. But, you know, the high inflation of the 1970s, what did that do to fixed income? You know, really hurt fixed income investors. During the First World War, we had uh, four years of inflation of, of close to 15%. That, you know, what does that do to fixed income investors? Really, really hurts them. So, again, investors need to be aware of, of, of inflation and the danger of inflation. So if you're holding lots of cash, lots of government bonds, you need to take into account that inflation can happen and can very quickly erode the, the value of your, your holding. So what do you say about that uh, kind of defensive part of the portfolio that, you know, somebody like James Tobin, for example, the guy behind separation theorem said we, we should have a, an offensive part of the portfolio, uh, attacking part and a defensive. In the defensive part, presumably you, you would say, Bonds, would you? Although there's some concern about bonds that they might not be such a, a brilliant diversifier at the moment. Yeah, bonds. Uh, you know, yeah, but also, you know, you, you know, really traditional utility stocks. Mm. Um, you know, also could be part of that defensive part of your portfolio. 
And 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 what about corporate bonds? Because corporate bonds, you know, when when equity markets are are frothy, if you like, corporate bonds can um, act a bit like uh, equities, can't they? Pres- presumably, you would say. Uh, sort of short, short dated government bonds, gilts, treasuries are, are better for a, for, a, for kind of dampen portfolio risk. Yeah, yeah, because you know with the thing with corporate bonds. Well, there's, there's a couple of things with corporate bonds, uh, particularly in the UK. Historically, we've we've had a very small market relative to to other countries uh, in, in corporate bonds, um, and you would also have to be worried about the liquidity uh, of the corporate bond market um, because of that. And so, and then there's the credit risk associated with 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 corporate bonds, as well as that inflation risk. You've also got the credit risk. Um, so yeah, you know, and, you know, short dated treasuries uh, would, would be preferable. Uh, so you were saying that you you, you thought that the, the best approach for most investors, hard though it is to to sort of ride out these the, the these bubbles. So so presumably you would say that means. Uh, investors deciding on their capacity for risk, if you like, and then sticking with it and and, and rebalancing their their, their portfolio um, every year or so. Or what, what what would your suggestion be there? Having a well diversified portfolio, uh, as you say, across different sectors, across different risk classes, and you know rebalancing that. Um, also thinking about your dividend income. Uh, you know, dividends, again, I've looked at dividends over 200 years. Dividends used to form a really important part of uh, the returns that investors received. In fact, the, the, the predominant part, that's no longer the case. But I still think dividends have an important role uh, to play. And, you know, reinvesting that dividend income is, is also, if you're wanting to build up, a, a you know, something for your retirement is super important. Just one final question. It's been absolutely fascinating uh, talking to you, John. Um you know, of all the bubbles that you looked at, it, it is the one that you really thought, "Wow, this absolutely deserves more more attention than it's been given." We all know about the the uh, South Sea bubble, for example, uh, and obviously, you know, because we've lived through uh, the, the sort of more recent ones, we can kind of recall those. But is is there? Have you got a favourite bubble, if you like? <laughs> yeah. So so. so. Yes, I, I, I do. Um, and that's the bubble that took place in Australia in the 1880s. Mm. Uh, so it was, a, it, it was the, probably the first major bubble that had devastating economic consequences uh, for, for an economy. Uh, so in the 1880s, uh, Melbourne and other parts of Australia went through this huge property boom uh, that, that also spilled over onto the, prop, uh, onto the stock market because a lot of the de- property development companies, a lot of the banks got involved in funding this bubble. Uh, the government were involved uh, because they were deregulating the financial system. So we had, we had almost a completely deregulated financial system. We had no central bank. Uh, there was, in essence, no regulation of banks. And uh, it was a gr- great party while it lasted. Um, but then it, then, it, then it burst and it had dramatic consequences. Uh, you know, Half of Australia's banks at the time uh, failed. Uh, Australia entered a deep depression, and it took Australia two decades to recover from the the economic fallout of, of that bubble. So, because of that sort of, you know, 
the fact that it happened in an era or a country where there's no central bank, where the banking system was deregulated, kind of makes it fascinating for me. But then those long run uh, economic consequences that show us really the dangers of, of these types of, of bubbles is the other thing that really fascinates me. So, yeah, Australia in the 1880s, that's my favourite bubble. Excellent. John, thank you so much for your for your time. Briefly remind listeners uh, what, what your book's called and, 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 and how they can buy it. Uh, so, yeah, BIM and Bust, uh, a global history of uh, financial bubbles. It's available at all good uh, retailers online and uh, from your local uh, bookstores as well. Uh, published by Cambridge University Press. Uh, and I can certainly recommend it too. John, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much, Robin. You've been listening to me, Robin Powell, interviewing John Turner, Professor of Finance and Financial History at Queen's University Belfast and co-author of Boom and Bust, A Global History of Financial Bubbles. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to it on iTunes or on SoundCloud. Better still, why not write a review on iTunes? Thank you to Regis Media for producing and funding this podcast. Thank you to John Turner. And most of all, thanks to you for listening. Until next time, from me and our producer, James Cresswell, goodbye.